Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I'd like to speak on the subject, the labor of the righteous. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we'll jump down to verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens." And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a great mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And now verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. For many, this is a long weekend as our nation celebrates Labor Day and unofficially marks the end of summer. But the intent of Labor Day celebration is to be a day set aside to pay tribute to working men and women who have made this so great a nation. Labor Day has been celebrated as a national holiday in the United States and Canada since 1894. Historians credit Peter McGuire, a leader of the Carpenters Union, with the original idea of a day to honor American workers. However, many believe that Matthew McGuire, actually a machinist, proposed the holiday in 1882 while serving as the secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York. Whatever the case, the first Labor Day parade occurred September 5, 1882 in New York City. The workers' union chose the first money in September because it was halfway between Independence Day and Thanksgiving. The idea spread across the country, and some states designated Labor Day as a holiday before the federal government did. Then President Grover Cleveland signed a law designating the first Monday in September as Labor Day nationwide. This is interesting because Cleveland was not a labor union supporter. In fact, he was trying to repair some political damage suffered earlier that year when he sent federal troops to Chicago, Illinois to put down a strike by the American Railway Union at the Pullman Company. By the way, that action resulted in the deaths of 34 workers. But the pattern of celebrating a Labor Day included a street parade to exhibit to the public the strength and esprit de corps of the trade and labor organizations. That was followed by a festival for families, and speeches made by prominent men and women were introduced later as more emphasis was placed upon the economic and civic significance of the holiday. But later, by resolution of the American Federation of the Labor Convention in 1909, the Sunday preceding Labor Day was adopted as Labor Sunday and was dedicated to the spiritual and educational aspects of the movement. Might I add, 
that concept has pretty much been lost these days, has it not? But nonetheless, this is a day set aside for the purpose of emphasizing the spiritual aspect of the labor movement in America. And we'd like to look at that topic this morning, as I said, the labor of the righteous. The word work or related words, occurs 676 times in Scripture, and the word labor, or other forms, uh, appear another 125 times. Then when you consider the words serve, service, and others, they combine for over 2,000 references in the Word of God concerning the subject of labor, work, service. Since the Bible has so much to say about this topic, I think it would do us well to find out what he has to say about labor and to heed the admonitions and warnings about this. In our endeavor to know both the Bible and understand it, we take into consideration a number of principles in regard to interpreting Scripture. We do so for the purpose of correctly accurately dividing the Word of God. The Scripture emphasized the importance of rightly dividing the Scripture. We want to do that this morning. But I would uh, call to your attention one of the principles used in Bible interpretation is known as the first mention principle. It is that principle by which God indicates in the first mention of a subject the truth with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. Sir Isaac Newton said this, I find in Scripture this principle of interpretation, which I believe, if conscientiously adopted, will serve as an unfailing guide to what was in the mind of God. This is the keystone of the whole matter. Bible scholar and linguist Dr. A.T. Pearson stated, This is a law we have long since noted and have never yet found it to fail. The first occurrence of a word, expression, or utterance is the key to its subsequent meaning, or it will be a guide to ascertaining the essential truth connected with it. In other words, the first time something is mentioned in Scripture, it carries with it that meaning all through the Word of God. For example, the first time the serpent is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and the characteristic of subtlety is associated with him. He was was the subtlest of all creatures. That concept or idea or characteristic of subtlety follows Satan all through the Word of God. The first time a word is used in Scripture, it carries that meaning throughout Scripture. It just causes me to not understand the concept or the the thinking, if you will, of Reformed theologians who believe the word all can refer to everyone in one passage of Scripture and only a representation of everyone in another passage of Scripture. Or how they can say the word whosoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They say that word whosoever doesn't mean everyone. It refers to peoples of every group, nation, tongue, and so on. Whereas in another passage of scripture it means everyone. I don't get it. That is a faulty 
method of Bible interpretation. The first mentioned principle teaches us the first time you see something in Scripture, it follows that concept and idea throughout the Word of God. Why did I go through all of that? Well, in the subject of work and labor, I'd like us to consider the first example we see in Scripture of that. Here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're going to notice two things this morning. Now, I have really enjoyed this study, but I'm afraid I've packed too much in, so I'm going to go ahead and hit the highlights as we go through this, and tonight we'll come back and spend a little more time on a couple of these subjects in detail. But two thoughts this morning. First, God's example of labor, and secondly, God's expectation for labor. The one, he provides the example of how we're doing it, how we're supposed to do it. The second, he lays out his expectation of what he wants us to do in regard to labor. Notice Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. First mention of the word work in Scripture. Contrary to the beliefs, attitudes, and actions of many today, work is both commanded of and blessed by God. Work is not a dirty four-letter word. No, in fact, he has provided us with the example of how we should work with his own actions here in creation. Notice with me two things in regard to God's example of labor. First, we see God rested when his work was complete. Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. Notice God rested on the seventh day when the work was done. Many people believe today that rest should be either precede work or replace work, but that's contrary to the model God has set forth for us. Work first, then rest. God set the example for all mankind to follow. Finish what you start, complete the task, get the job done. And by the way, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, carried this same attitude with him throughout his earthly ministry. John chapter 4 verse 34, addressing his disciples, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. John 9, 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Did he finish his task? John nineteen thirty. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What was the work of God he came to do. He said he had to do his father's work. He had to do his father's will. What was that work? What was that task? It was putting in place God's plan of salvation. Aren't you glad Jesus finished what he started? He took that burden, that task, that responsibility to cross with him, and he finished what he set out to do. When he cried, it is finished. He thus made the greatest declaration known to man in regard to our salvation. 
What a blessing to know we don't have to work ourselves to gain entrance into heaven. We don't have to put forth a specific number of accomplishments. We don't have to do a various assignment of tasks and deeds. We don't have to go through any set of rules and regulations and rights. We simply call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith and receive him as our Savior. Oh, thank God. God finishes what he starts Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I look at my own life, my failures, my shortcomings, and I think this is a task far too great for even God himself to accomplish. But I'm thankful nothing is too great a task for him. And when he began a good work in us, he said he's going to see it through to the end. He's not going to give up on us. He's not going to cast us aside. He's not going to say too hard, too much trouble, not worth the time. No, he's going to finish what he began. Hebrews 13 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Yes, God rested when his work was complete. And beloved, we need to follow that example and get it in our minds and hearts. There's a job to do and we need not plan on resting till that work is complete. We will enter one day into our eternal rest. Notice not only God rested when his work was complete, he rested when it was correct. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. What work? What is that referring to? It's referring to creation. You see, everything God does is right. None of the tasks he performs are done poorly, half-heartedly, or in a slipshod, haphazard manner. His expectation is that things be done well done. And by the way, he does reward accordingly those who do well. We see this in the parable of the talents when Jesus said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But going back to this idea, God rested when his work was complete. Nowhere in scripture is this principle more clearly demonstrated than in Genesis chapter 1. You're in chapter 2. Look back at Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to highlight a few things here as we go through this chapter. Notice a repeating specific truth about God's act of creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 4. And God saw the light that it was good. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth. And then he called, uh, he called the seas, the water of the seas. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12, and the earth brought forth grass, herb yielding seed of every kind, and the tree yielding fruit. God saw that it was good. Verse 18, he divided the light from the darkness. 
God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, winged fowls after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, he made the beast of the earth after his kind, the cattle and everything that creepeth upon the earth. And God saw that it was good. Notice the summary in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. By the way, that's the first time the word very appears in Scripture as well. The word very means exceedingly, highly, or greatly, and indicates excellence. What an example. The very first task performed in the history of the world was a job well done. And everything was good. And not just good, but very good. This flies in the face of many today whose attitude when it comes to work is this. That'll have to do. It's close enough. You can't see it from my house. What do you expect? Or that's as good as it gets for what I'm getting paid. I'm glad God didn't take that attitude of it's good enough when creating the world. I'm glad he didn't take the attitude of that's fine. That's all they're worth anyway. When it came to setting in motion his plan of salvation. What a joy to know. God completes the work he starts and he completes it correctly. We had a previous pastor who used to say, good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. God has put forth a very clear example of labor here in this passage of Scripture for us to follow. But notice with me as well as we continue God's expectation for our labor. Back to Genesis chapter 2. I had you jump down to verse 15. Look at that. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Next, after creation, comes God's description of the garden of Eden and is placing Adam in the midst of the garden. As far as we know, God's first communication with Adam following the Lord's explanation for creating him, because God did tell him why he created him. Here God gives Adam this instruction. He tells him what he wants him to do and what he expects him to perform. Okay, let me read this again. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God put Adam in the place of the Lord's choosing. I made reference to this earlier. It's important to know you're in the right church. It's important to know you're in the right place. God had a place picked out for Adam. That was the Garden of Eden. And God put Adam in the garden. He could have put him anywhere else in the world, but he chose the Garden of Eden. God is the giver of gifts and abilities. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses and what's best for us. He never tasks us with a duty we cannot accomplish. This verse helps us to see two aspects of man's labor. Notice the first. We see the manner of the task. He put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it. The verb to dress 
is directed toward man and means to cultivate or to work. It's found almost 300 times throughout the Old Testament, and it's first used in Genesis 2.5. Up in verse 5, and every plant of the field before it was uh, in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till work the ground. It wasn't there, there was nobody to till it, to work it, to dress it. That's the first occurrence we see of that particular word. But notice... There was not a man to till the ground. There was a job to be done and nobody to do it. So God chose someone, Adam, and he put him there. Now, that's a little humorous because really there wasn't anybody else available. Adam was the only one that could do the job. So, I mean, it's kind of obvious that he was the right man for the job. But, you know, in relation to us as God's children, he knows us. He knows our characteristics, our strengths, our weaknesses, our gifts, our abilities, because he does give us gifts. We know we receive spiritual gifts of the Lord. And God enables us to do the work he assigns us to do. And God, in his wisdom and divine providence, chooses to place us into the body for our labor and service. And he does so because he knows best where we might serve and how we might accomplish the task given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, let me have you turn there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Those of you who are following along in your Bible, I'd like you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Now, actually, there are chapters 12... 13, 14, these all deal with this subject of God's gifting us and giving us abilities to serve him. But we'll just summarize it here in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 reads, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now we recognize some of those gifts mentioned there are sign gifts that are no longer in effect today. They passed off with the apostles. They were gifts given specifically as a sign to the Jews that the gospel was being made available not only to them as the chosen of Israel, but to the Samaritans and the Gentiles as well. But what we have here is God's indication that he chooses to give each of us specific gifts that we might carry out the work of the ministry and fulfill our task as believers in this life. Notice down in verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him the body. Christ is the head, we the church are the body. God places us in the body in a place of service according to his will. Psalm 135 at verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased... That did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. 
Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. The Lord makes it clear in scripture that he assigns us to a place and gives us a specific task by which we might serve him. Ezekiel 33.7, O thou son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. Something else about that word dress. It's not just directed toward man, but it's directed toward God. You see, it also means to serve, to worship. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy 6.13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. It's used in Psalm 100 verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. God gave to Adam the task of cultivating or working the ground. And he was to fulfill that task in service to the Lord. His working in the garden wasn't just a job. It was a means by which he could honor the Lord. For God's children, work and worship go hand in hand. So many of us make the mistake of thinking worship is just for church. But in doing so, we separate worship from every other aspect of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. God gives us a job. But the problem for many is they see no connection between their work and the worship of the one who gave them that task. And therefore, their attitude is, well, that's just going to have to be good enough. After all, I don't care. But when we recognize the work we seek to accomplish is for God and for his glory... The I don't care attitude gets thrown out with the trash. And we stand before the Lord and say, thank God for the task he's given me to do. Thankfully, he's given me the strength to do his work and his will. And I will do it for his good pleasure that I might honor him with my life. Well, again, the manner of the task is to work and to worship. Then the multitude of the task is to keep it. Again, Genesis 2.50, not only to dress it, but to keep it. We've been given a task. God expects us to accomplish something. He expects us to do so in honor of him. But the word keep, it means to tend, to watch over, or to retain. See, Adam's task or job was that of a caretaker. That requires commitment. Commitment to stick with the job until it's done. God gave us the example of seeing a job through to the end, of doing something to its completion. Well, God expects us to follow that. And here he addresses it by saying, Adam, you're supposed to not only dress the garden, to work the garden, to be busy in the Garden of Eden, but you're to keep it. You're to oversee it. And that's a long-term commitment. It indicates responsibility, steadfastness, and longevity. Again, God himself demonstrates this characteristic, Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He will always, always have his eye 
upon his people. As an overseer, Adam was expected to carry out his responsibility until God told him differently. Now we know circumstances changed because Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord. And as a result, were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But God's plan was for Adam to stick with that job until the Lord said he was done. The same expectation is placed upon each of us. God provides us with the example of completing a task we begin. He expects us to not just enter into an endeavor, but to see it through to its completion. God expects us to faithfully, diligently, responsibly work until the task is finished and to do so with heaven in view. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Problem is a lot of folks, they're not looking past the weekend. All they can think of is quitting time on Friday. All they can think of is making it through to the end of the workday. Beloved, we're looking forward to the time when we enter into our rest, which is heaven. We shall then be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will enjoy the rest of the eternal in that day. But for now, we're supposed to work and to labor and to finish the task that God has given us to do. What is that task? It's the work of the ministry. It's honoring the Lord. And it is using the gifts God has equipped us with to accomplish that which he has given us to do. When are we done? You see, there's no real retirement from the service of God. One might retire from an occupation, but we never, we never come to the end of the time when we, we just stop living for God. And say, well, that's it. I've reached the age of... I don't do anything for God anymore. No, there is no such age. We serve the Lord until he calls us home, either through the grave or through the clouds. However, some have kind of given up on that task, haven't they? They say, well, I've served the Lord for many years. I'll let somebody else do it. Ooh, wrong attitude. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord and stay focused on seeking to honor him by accomplishing the task he's given us to do. The labor of the righteous is the labor of God's children who follow his example and seek to accomplish the given task he has for each of us in such a manner that we might worship him and call attention to his goodness, glory, and greatness in the way. How are we doing in that area of the labor of the righteous. Let me close with this illustration. Jamestown leader, Captain John Smith, issued the following command to the settlers because many of them were idle. They were either spending their time doing nothing or they were spending their time trying to find gold. This is what he said to them. Countrymen, the long experience of our late miseries, I hope is sufficient to persuade everyone to present correction of himself, and to think not that either my pains nor the adventurer's purses will ever maintain you in idleness and sloth. I speak not this to you all, for divers of you I know deserve both honor and reward, better than is yet here to be had. 
but the greater part must be more industrious or starve. However, you have been heretofore tolerated by the authority of the council. From that I have often commanded you. Ye see now that power resteth wholly in myself. You must obey this now for a law. That he that will not work shall not eat, except by sickness he be disabled. For the laborers of thirty or forty honest and industrious men shall not be consumed to maintain an hundred and fifty idle loiterers. Therefore, he that offendeth, let him assuredly expect his due punishment. He made it clear that if they were going to survive, they had to be serious about the work of establishing their settlement. God makes it clear there is a task to be performed by his children. And if we're going to be serious about the work of the Lord and serving him, we need to lift up our eyes and look on the fields and see they are white already to harvest. Thomas Edison once said, there is no substitute for hard work. Now we can work for ourselves, we can work for others, or we can work for the Lord. If you choose to work for God, why not demonstrate your love for him by worshiping him while you work?